millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Signals to Danger, a new podcast which will deal with some of the most devastating and significant disasters that have ever taken place on the UK rail network. I'm Dan. I'm a real professional in the real world, but during this podcast I'll be the one taking you through these incidents. We'll be using the official reports, news sources and other accounts from the time to understand what happened, how it was investigated and what impact it has had on the industry going forwards. Now Signals to Danger deals with disaster and situations that have caused death. It is something to bear in mind if you're worried that this might be a subject that could upset or affect you. In any case, with that introduction out of the way, let's get started. As the sun began to rise, the devastation became truly apparent. All 11 vehicles of a high-speed passenger train were derailed and scattered across an embankment. Carriages tossed around and twisted like toys. On the line adjacent, a coal train stood, solemn, its locomotive laid on its side in the front garden next to the tracks. Ten lives lost, 82 people injured, many of them seriously, and immeasurable damage to both the infrastructure and the vehicles. The cause? Probably not what you're expecting. The cause of the crash is still not certain. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. As ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals, survivors sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for quality. A routine everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured, in one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle to untangle the wreckage of the police and fire were to say that the people killed in 76 inches when train traffic from London Kings Cross to King's Lynch derailed on the wagon case lane. And 150 firemen from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. Hi, I'm Dan, and welcome to Signals to Danger, Episode 1. This is a podcast where we will look at UK rail disasters and try to understand how they happened, what could have prevented them, and how they shaped the industry going forwards. Now me, personally, I'm a rail professional in my day-to-day life, but for a long time I found accident reports incredibly interesting, and I've read a lot of them. This podcast is an opportunity for me to share that interest with all of you. So, here we are, in our first episode To set the scene, the year is 2001. It's February, and a lot has already happened. George W. Bush has already been sworn in as the 43rd President of the United States, Daft Punk has just released their second studio album, and Wikipedia has just been launched. Four years earlier, the Hatfield accident had led to the deaths of four passengers on the East Coast Main Line. The short explanation for that accident is that it was down to metal fatigue, but we are going to go into it in a lot more detail in a later episode. 
The findings of the investigation at Hatfield led to a sweeping series of speed restrictions and track replacements across the network, which in turn led to a time of real difficulty for both the railway and the economy on a whole. The events of this episode take place on a network still repairing itself. Now our story is set in an idyllic, small North Yorkshire village that you probably wouldn't have heard of if today's story hadn't taken place. Great heck. One Foxtrot 23 was a Great North Eastern Railway service from Newcastle to London's King's Cross Station. Driven by driver John Weddle, it was booked to depart Newcastle at the early hour of 0445 on the 28th of February 2001. An Intercity 225 high-speed train, Foxtrot 23 comprised a Class 91 electric locomotive, number 91023, nine Mark IV passenger carriages and a driving van trailer. The driving van trailer, or DVT, looks to all intents and purposes like another locomotive. It has a streamlined cab at one end, just like the Class 91, but instead of traction equipment, the rest of the vehicle consists of storage and office space. The 225 is designed to work high-speed passenger services up and down the country, capable of operating at 140 miles an hour, but limited to 125 due to the constraints of the network. Much like the HST before it, the cabs at both ends meant that the Intercity 225s can operate in a push-pull formation. They can run from one city to another and back again, without having to turn around at each end. They were normally arranged with the Class 91 facing north, pulling towards Scotland and pushing down towards London. On the 28th, this was a southbound train. An early morning service, time to get businessmen into London and time for a morning meeting. As it left Newcastle just before 5am, the DVT was leading, followed by the nine passenger carriages and pushed along by the locomotive as it continued on to the East Coast main line. This main line leads from Scotland all the way down the country to London. The bulk of the route between Edinburgh and King's Cross is electrified. This allows for fast and efficient passenger and freight services to carve their way up and down the country. Now, I should probably take a second quickly to explain something that might come up in these podcasts and it might take a little bit of getting used to if you're not particularly railway minded. During these episodes, particularly if I'm quoting from reports, I may use the directions up and down. As simple as that sounds, it's not always as intuitive as you might think. For example, on the East Coast Main Line, the direction up must mean up the country towards Scotland, yeah? and down the country to London. Unfortunately, it's not actually that simple. In fact, it's the exact opposite in this case. Generally, up actually means towards London, and down the opposite. This is the way that the railway differentiates between different lines on multiple track sections. They could be referred to as the up main and down main, for example. Sometimes these names also refer to the use of specific lines or the direction that they're headed, So you could have the up fast, the down fast, the up goods loop, the down Manchester and so on and so forth. And with some sections of track coming in and out of stations having six or seven lines, there's really no end to the combination. It does certainly keep you on your toes, as does some of the units of measurements. Some parts of the world use miles, others use kilometres. Have you ever heard of chains? The UK Rail Network refers to distances in terms of miles and chains. There are 80 chains in a mile. 
So if the report I'm reading to you from says that a bridge is two miles and forty chains from Leeds, it's two and a half miles. You with me? Good. So now that that housekeeping is out of the way, let's get back to the day of the accident. Just before 6am our passenger train, one Foxtrot 23, departs York and starts to speed up. By about 10 past, the Class 91 got the train set up to around line speed for this section, 125 miles an hour, as it pushed on southward. Further south, on the down line away from London, a coal train lumbered northbound. Six Golf 34, a Freightliner heavy haul service consisting of a Class 66 locomotive, number 66521, pulling 16 HHA hopper wagons each weighing around about 100 tonnes when they were fully laden, which they were this morning. Driver Stephen Dunn, accompanied by an instructor, James Hill, was hauling the coal from the port at Immingham to the power station at Ferrybridge, just a few miles north of Great Heck. With the passenger train barrelling south at between 120 and 125 miles an hour, and the freight heading north at around about 54, the distance between the two was rapidly shrinking. Until the 28th of February 2001, Gary Hart was a fairly inconsequential character, unlikely to be recognised outside of his own social circles. Over the next few weeks and months, his name would become prominent in national media. This recognition would start with a phone call which thrust him out of obscurity. At 6.13 in the morning, Gary made a 999 call. As he was connected through to the police... He explained to the operator how he'd been involved in a car accident. He told them that his car, a Land Rover, which had been towing a trailer with another car in it, had ended up on a railway line. As he described how he'd come off the M62 motorway, the operator tried to narrow down his location. As they spoke, Mr Hart suddenly explained that there was a train coming. Suddenly the emergency call is drowned out by the noise of a train passing, as Gary Hart swears. The 999 call had recorded the moment that one Foxtrot 23 collided with the Land Rover. Ripping the front end of the car off, the DVT leading the train dragged debris and wreckage along the track. 48 metres beyond the impact point, the leading bogey, the frame which holds the wheels together, derailed to the right. With the train's brakes fully applied, the train ran in line and upright, with only the lead bogey derailed. In this way, the train began to slow the speed dropping constantly. Suddenly, after around 500 metres in this configuration, the leading bogey suddenly became airborne and deflected further over to the right. The trailing bogey also derailed. Again, the train rang more or less parallel to the rails for around a further 100 metres. If you want to try and picture this, imagine two train tracks. The left up towards London and the right down away. Our train is heading up and the leading vehicle of this train now sits at an angle probably around 20 or so degrees to the right, so that its rear wheels are running off the rails, left hand between the two rails and the right hand in the ballast off to the right hand side, but facing forwards. The leading wheels are both in the ballast between the two tracks again facing forwards. The most important thing is that now, in this configuration, it's where the front of the driving van trailer has ended up. It's so far over to the right that it's now conflicting with the tracks heading in the other direction. The real terminology used in the report is that it was fouling the down main. By this time, 
around 642 metres since the train impacted the car, the Intercity 225 had slowed to around 88 miles an hour. Unfortunately, it was at this point that it collided with the Class 66 travelling in the opposite direction at around 54 miles an hour. This second collision utterly finished the job that Gary Hart's Land Rover had started. The DBT, incredibly damaged by this second collision, and the eight leading coaches of the London-bound train derailed and scattered down the embankment to the side of the tracks and into an adjacent field. The Class 66 from the northbound freight and eight of its wagons were also derailed, the locomotive ending its journey on its left-hand side, both bogies missing, in a front garden adjacent to the tracks. In a matter of seconds, a closing speed of 142 miles an hour had turned to silent stillness, coal dust and diesel fumes hanging in the air in the pitch black of a winter's morning. At 6.15 in the morning, two minutes after Gary Hart's call, numerous passengers on the train and residents of Great Heck started to make their own 999 calls. A little over 15 minutes later, the emergency services began to arrive in force at 6.33. The first stage of response to an incident like this is rescue and recovery. The first priority must always be to preserve life and rescue those trapped. Control of the incident initially was managed by Humberside Fire Service. They set up a casualty clearing station at a farm next to the track and ambulances operated from there, ferrying the wounded to hospitals in Leeds and other close-by cities and towns. East Yorkshire Emergency Control contacted the armed forces and the Royal Air Force sent two helicopters from nearby RAF Lakeham Field to accompany the West Yorkshire Ambulance Service's own helicopter. This provided a quick form of transport for the most seriously injured to hospital. Once all the rescue and recovery operations were completed, the death toll became clear. In this accident, ten lives were lost. Four of them were the crew on the trains, and the other six passengers. They were Chris Terry, a 30-year-old father of one travelling to London on business. His mobile phone was found with 61 missed calls. Ray Robson, the 43-year-old conductor of the GNAR service, a past recipient of a safety award from the company for stopping a train as someone tried to jump on it at the station. Paul Taylor, the 42-year-old father of two who was the chef on the GNAR service. Professor Steve Baldwin, 39-year-old psychology professor at the University of Teesside, driver John Weddle, the 47-year-old GNAR driver with 25 years experience and two children at home, driver Stephen Dunn, the 39-year-old driver of the Freightliner service. From a village near Selby, he was only miles from home and left two sons behind. Alan Enser, a 44-year-old engineer from York who left two sons of his own. Barry Needham, a 40-year-old freight logistics coordinator, who also worked on the railway. Clive Vigin, a 39-year-old business manager from York. And finally, Robert Shakespeare, a 43-year-old IT manager from East Yorkshire, who was survived by a wife and four children between the ages of 9 and 17. Following the completion of the rescue and recovery stage, the work of recovering the wrecks and the investigation began. Agencies of all descriptions had started to flood the fields behind the track as the morning proceeded. The HSE, the Health and Safety Executive, 
sent along Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate, also called HMRI. They were the forerunner to today's Rail Accident Investigation Branch. They were joined by Railtrack, the company responsible for the infrastructure itself, British Transport Police and North Yorkshire Police. There was quite a complex relationship between these different bodies. The relationship between these different bodies was quite complex. It's probably worth me reading the extract from the HSE report to you. North Yorkshire Police and BTP to implement the work-related deaths protocol that HSE has with police forces and the Crown Prosecution Service. This protocol acknowledges that in the case of work-related death on the railway, HSE and BTP both have different but related roles and responsibilities. North Yorkshire Police and BTP have responsibility to investigate the possibility of negligence, manslaughter due to individual or corporate failures in connection with any deaths and also have a role in assisting the coroner. HSE is responsible for enforcement of relevant health and safety legislation. In accordance with the protocol, the Great Heck incident became a joint investigation with HSE managing the technical issues while North Yorkshire Police and BTP explored potential manslaughter issues. In short, the law at the time meant that if someone was killed at work, which at least four people had been, then the police had an obligation to investigate if any criminality or negligence had caused this. The HSE, on the other hand, had to understand the causes and failings of any health and safety legislation. At great heck, this allowed the various parties to work well together. The investigation into this incident had to understand several points in order to explain how it had become one of the worst accidents of the privatised rail network. The first, how had a car ended up on the East Coast Main Line? The second, how did the collision with the car cause the DVT to derail into the path of the freight train? The third, how the vehicles involved performed adequately in terms of their crashworthiness? And the fourth, had any failings in the operation of the railway caused this disaster? As the investigation began, it became clear that number four was the easiest to answer. It was a simple no. The report concluded that the signals in the area had been operating as required, each train was allowed to be where it was and running with no conflicts to other traffic, while the first collision with the car had taken place in a part of the line controlled by York Integrated Signalling Centre, the precursor to today's Rail Operations Centre, by the time the second collision had occurred, the train had travelled far enough that it was now in an area partly controlled by Doncaster Power Signal Box. Damage caused to the signalling cables by the initial derailment had caused all of the signals in the area to default to danger, as designed. On top of this, all of the fencing in the area for the railway was found to be in line with the current regulations, so that too was ruled out as a contributing factor. The freight train had been allowed to depart 20 minutes earlier than scheduled from Immingham to start its journey up to Ferrybridge. This was entirely normal practice and posed no additional risk, as the path existed for it and no signalling risks were introduced by this decision. Both train drivers were competent on their respective traction, which means they were qualified to drive the trains they were responsible for, and both had reacted appropriately to the unfolding disaster. Although it certainly won't be the case in every episode we cover, all of the safety systems and methods of work the railway employees worked here at Great Heck. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So next, going through the accident chronologically, the investigators needed to understand how a vehicle had managed to leave a major motorway, bypass any safety barriers and fencing, and end up on a major railway line. The Highways Agency, now referred to as Highways England, is the organisation responsible for maintaining and operating the UK's major air roads and motorways. As part of the investigation, they conducted assessments of the M62 and the road bridge which crossed the railway. One of the first things they investigated was the condition of the road. Had Gary Hart lost control due to ice on the road? It was February, and a sprinkling of snow can be seen in some of the videos and photographs of the aftermath. Records showed that although a precautionary application of rock salt had been applied the evening before, due to rain falling throughout the night and the weather forecast, further gritting was halted in the early hours. When measurements were reviewed for the actual weather and the temperature, it was ascertained that the motorway bridge was unlikely to have been affected by ice and snow. That explanation, off the table. The next thing the highways agency needed to rule out is whether the accident was somehow caused by the design of the bridge itself. Was the protection fences and barriers provided to the railway faulted in their design? The bridge which carried the motorway over the railway was sturdy, correctly designed and had barriers attached at either end which extended back along the carriageway for extra protection. The standard at the time it was built required a 30 metre fence and at Great Heck the fence extended for 33.5. Not only that, there was an additional 9 metres at each side where this fence sloped down before it was connected to a concrete terminal. These fences, not to blame. Finally, the last part of the road traffic investigation needed to ascertain the route the Land Rover took from the road. The front near-side wheel of Gary Hart's vehicle hit the kerb 50 metres before the start of the fence. This is a full 92 metres before the bridge itself. 20 metres later, his offside front wheel joined it. This meant he left the road at about 5 or 6 degrees off the direction of the carriageway. After he was off the tarmac, it travelled down a 3 metre embankment, crashed through 17 metres of a fence separating fields, destroyed the railway boundary fence and ran down the cutting, coming to a rest on the tracks. It was clear to investigators that no outside influence led to Gary Hart's vehicle leaving the motorway that night. The fault for that lay with the person at the wheel. In fact, as the criminal investigation continued, the facts that emerged about Gary Hart painted a picture of a bit of an unusual man. He described himself as a hunter-gatherer, a builder who travelled around 40,000 miles a year seeking out work. Separated from his wife, he claimed he could go for 36 hours at a time without needing a break. He regularly skipped meals and stayed up playing computer games. In fact, in one interview with the police, he described his life as being 1,000 miles an hour. Eight days before the crash, Gary met a woman online. They exchanged messages and phone calls at all hours of the day. In fact, the night before the accident, 
They had spent a great deal of time speaking over the course of the night. In between days of driving from one side of the country to the other for work, spending time with his family and his wife, whom he was separated from, and speaking to his sweetheart, Gary had not a lot of time for sleep. During his early police interviews, he initially claimed he had enjoyed a lengthy three hours sleep prior to setting out on the morning of the 28th to drive to the other side of the Pennines. When he found out later on that the police had spoken to his love interests, he amended that time down to 45 minutes. 45 minutes sleep prior to driving a one and a half ton 4x4 towing a trailer loaded up with another car at night across the country. After the investigation was complete, it was deemed that Gary Hart had fallen asleep at the wheel of his car. He had drifted over the rumble strip, a series of bumps at the side of the motorway designed to wake people up, and stayed asleep. He drifted over the grass verge and down an embankment, across a field and through two fences before he ended up on the railway. It appeared to investigators as though brakes hadn't even been applied as the car went down the embankment. All of this eventually led to police charging Gary Hart, with ten counts of causing death by dangerous driving. In terms of the really simple reason for why this accident occurred, a sleep-deprived man nodded off at the wheel, and he did it in the worst possible place, and while he didn't become a statistic himself, ten lives were lost as a result. The next thing that needed to be worked out as part of the investigation was how the impact with the car had led to the collision with the freight train. The investigators managed to work out that the most likely first point of collision was between the driver's side front wing of the Land Rover and the left hand buffer of the DVT. The lighter bodywork and radiator and pulleys would have collapsed quickly until the heavy solid engine block came into contact with the buffer. To understand what physically caused the derailment, there was extensive computer modelling done to try and virtually model it. It was eventually shown that when coupled with the impulse generated by the impact, an object greater than 10mm diameter passing under the right hand front wheel most likely caused the derailment. After the leading bogey left the track, the DVT ran upright and in line with the remainder of the train. This isn't a happy accident. It's actually part of the design of these vehicles. With the rest of the train's wheels on the track and the emergency braking, the train began to slow down. The final factor which made this accident so terrible was the location that it took place in. 500 metres beyond the site of the initial impact lay a good siding called Plasmo Yard. The yard is accessed by a set of points, a junction on the railway which faced northbound on the southbound line. The closure rail, the rail that would direct the left-hand wheels of a northbound train through the junction, lay between the rails diagonally, which, as I say, it sounds like a bit of a mouthful, so to simplify that, as the derailed wheel set approached the sidings, the left-hand wheels, which were now running between the two tracks, came across a diagonal piece of steel running from left to right. As the left-hand wheels of the leading bogey made contact with the closure rail, they were thrust to the right. This was the mechanism which brought the two trains together. The last real point of the investigation was to find out whether or not the design and crashworthiness of the vehicles involved had contributed to the severity of the accident. 
At the point of collision between the two trains, the DVT, down on the ballast instead of the rails, was sitting lower than the Class 66. Because of this, the locomotive overrode the DVT and caused extensive damage to it, ripping the cab clear, crushing the storage area further back. The bogies of both vehicles collided and the Class 66 was tipped to the left, where it slid along the ground as the wagons behind it started to derail. The 6,500 litre fuel tank underneath the Class 66 was ruptured as part of the collision with the passenger train. As the collision continued, fuel was sprayed across many of the carriages and wagons, however luckily there was no fire. The sudden deceleration of the DBT meant that the leading coach of the train behind it started to override it from the rear as well. The DVT was almost unrecognisable following all of this. Now, if you want to learn a little more, and I really would recommend it, you can go online and you can read the HSE report. It goes into a lot of detail around the damage caused to each vehicle and the interactions they all had with each other. I won't quote it in that much detail, but I will briefly run through it. Coach M, that first passenger coach, was impacted by a portion of one of the Class 66's bogies. This ripped a hole in the side of the carriage. The second, Coach H, ended up with its trailing end embedded in the side of Coach E. Coach G, the buffet car, had been bent around a vertical crease and a substantial portion of the roof had been flattened. Coach F had been crushed in such a way that the floor met the roof at one end and reduced survival space substantially. The intrusion of Coach H into Coach E had removed around 8 seats worth of space and a portion of the roof had ripped off. Coach D saw a loss of survival space at one end due to the intrusion of a DBT bogey. By Coach C the damage was less substantial. This carriage was still on the embankment and had suffered a deformation of the floor along with some other lesser damage. Coach B remained upright on the track bed just underneath a road bridge with a deep gouge along its right hand side. Coach A had also remained upright with damage to the right hand side. Some seats had been moved towards the aisle by the impact. The Class 91 only suffered some minor damage. Funnily enough, this was the same Class 91 that had been involved in the Hatfield derailment four months earlier, where again it had only received minor damage there as well. While some minor points were raised around the couplings between the vehicles on the Intercity 225, the tables fitted to the carriages had detached and some of the first class seats had broken. The overwhelming conclusion of the investigators was that the crashworthiness of these vehicles was adequate. This was especially prominent in the knowledge that the speed of the collision, 142 miles an hour, was and indeed still is the highest speed collision in the UK. The sheer amounts of energy released in this collision would have made it impossible for these vehicles to have come out of it unscathed. So normally, at this point in the podcast, I would go through some of the changes brought about following this accident, but there haven't necessarily been any. This accident was brought about by a man driving his car recklessly. It wasn't due to a failing in a safety system, signalling error, driver error. It wasn't the result of skipped maintenance schedules or a poorly manufactured part. Gary Hart did see his day in court. Through November and December of 2001, he stood trial on the 10 counts of causing death by dangerous driving. 
jurors heard of how he had fallen asleep at the wheel after staying up all night talking to his sweetheart. Hart protested this, denying that he had fallen asleep and saying that he'd heard a bang shortly before the car left the motorway. Jurors weren't convinced, and on the 13th of December, Gary Hart was found guilty of all ten counts. He was jailed for five years. One of the more unusual factors about this whole affair is that technically, at the core of it, Great Heck is a road traffic accident. This is reflected in the fact that the person who paid for all of this was Gary Hart's car insurance. This is the reason your car insurance policy in the UK has unlimited third party cover. I managed to find several figures online, but it would appear that his insurance, and indeed their insurers, have paid out around £30 million as a result of the accident. Since his release, Gary Hart has offended victims by blaming fate for the accident. In an interview he gave shortly afterwards, he said he believed in fate, and he was meant to be there that morning. He gave an interview after he was released, saying that he shouldn't have been blamed for the deaths, again denying that he had fallen asleep. The kicker, the line that really frustrated me personally, let alone the victim's families, was that he insisted no deaths had occurred at the point the train hit his car. In his words, they all occurred 700 yards down the track, which I feel other people should have been held accountable for. So in my own head, I've dealt with it in that fashion. Understandably, this wasn't well received by anybody. It may be the case that this is the only way his mind will allow him to live with the guilt of what happened, but I can't help but think it was probably an opinion best kept to himself. The terrible fact of Great Heck is that it is the result of a sequence of coincidences. If Gary Hart had fallen asleep 10 yards further down the M62, he would have drifted into the barriers and been bounced back into the carriageway. If he had crashed 10 minutes earlier, a location could have been worked out on the 999 call and train stopped. If the turnout to the sidings hadn't been exactly where it was, the DVT would not have been deflected into the path of the down line. If the call train hadn't been allowed to depart early, it wouldn't have been there to collide with, and the Intercity 225 may well have remained upright. And finally, if the freight had been allowed to depart a few minutes earlier, he would have passed the Land Rover on the tracks and gotten an emergency message out, stopping or at least slowing down the passenger train. Timing was absolutely everything. Every component was where it needed to be and at the exact time that would combine and make this so severe. And you know what? It's difficult to say, but nearly 20 years since this has happened, if the same set of circumstances were thrown together in exactly the same way, would it happen again? Nothing has particularly changed on this section of the line since then. The motorway fences were well within the standard, Class 66 locomotives still haul freight here, and although they're in the process of phasing them out for the Azumas, you can still jump on an Intercity 225 and travel from the north down to London. Across the UK rail network there are still plenty of places where a car can access the line and cause collisions. Level crossings to country lanes which run alongside the tracks. Five years after Selby, 20 miles north at the village of Cotmanthorpe, three axles of a 100 mile an hour passenger train were derailed as a car drove out from the dead end of a lane, through a fence and out onto the east coast main line. While the driver of the car was killed, the train stayed upright and was brought safely to a stop. While the result of this was far less severe than Great Heck, 
throwing a set of points and another train heading in the opposite direction, it's worth thinking about. The last thing that I want to mention before I bring this episode to a close is memorials. Pretty much everyone who lost their lives at Great Heck left behind family and friends to mourn. A plaque was unveiled to the three GNAR train crew at Newcastle Central Station where they were based. This is placed a little closer to home for their families and their colleagues. During the investigation and repair phases of the incident, rail track staff grew quite a relationship with the villagers and a team of volunteers helped to repaint the parish council's village hall in return for their patience. Finally, a memorial garden was also created, overlooking the embankment and the field where the train came to rest. A simple but beautiful garden consisting of trees, ferns and flowers, designed to blend into its surroundings with a plaque set into stone and somewhere to sit for reflection. A local designer was selected to create the garden and he was supported by ideas from the village. I've been to this garden. In fact, it's only around half an hour from where I live. I've sat there. I've thought on the scenes from 20 years ago. As a place of reflection, I feel it absolutely does its job very well. And when a train speeds past at 125 miles an hour, it's very easy to imagine the events of a cold February morning. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I do really hope you enjoyed it. The sources that I used were the Health and Safety Executive's report, the track obstruction by a road vehicle and subsequent train collisions at Great Heck, 28th February 2001, which was first published in 2002. I also used articles from the Irish Times, The Independent, The Guardian, The BBC and The Newcastle Chronicle. Our opening credits and music throughout are excerpts from Light Goes Away by Doug Maxwell, and the closing credits were passed by Riot. If this has piqued your interest, I would recommend reading the report. They go into more detail than I could ever hope to recount on a podcast, and the diagrams and photographs really helped illustrate the incident. Once again, thank you, and I'll see you next time.